Greetings, everybody. This is Christopher Messina coming at you from the Messy Time Studios. It is April 19th, 2021. I am honored, delighted, and, and I can't tell you how excited you all are going to be. Uh, we've got a marvelous guest with us today, Patrick Young, calling us from... Some, where, where, where in Europe are you today, Patrick? I am in Valletta, the smallest capital city in the entirety of the European continent. So a 500-year-old city, Christopher, and it's a joy to be with you today. That's excellent. Welcome. How, how many people are in Valletta? What's the, what's the population? So the, the population of Valletta is roughly about 4,000 to 5,000 people. It's about the same size as the Principality of Monaco, though. So therefore, theoretically, it could have, whoa, a giddy 50, 60,000 people living here. But over the course of the last 20, 30 years, people have gone out to the countryside. That's a relative term on a tiny island such as Malta <laughs> and Gozo. And they started living there. So we're in a relatively sparsely populated area. But that doesn't stop us having the standard issue municipal crisis of our times, i.e., Wherever you have a metropolis, you have to have 25 builders next door drilling the living daylights out of the walls. So I apologize to your listeners for that during the course of time. Hopefully, it'll be knocking off time soon and we might get a slightly quieter opportunity for this chat. That, that's okay. It will actually serve as a helpful reminder to our listeners of part of the cacophony of insane noise that we set up messy times to cut through. So Absolutely. you've gotten a sense of what the show is about. My co-founder and I put the show together in the main to answer uh, questions from friends and family and, and uh, disinterested uh, uh, folks who you know, are, are inundated daily with the self-interested um, misrepresentations, shall we say, of the media or of politicians, all of whom have an agenda and all of whom seem to have an equal objective fear of any sort of truth uh, in terms of, of a fact basis for the, the agenda they're trying to push. So, you know, my partner and I both very, very much capital markets professionals. So we come from that area. And oftentimes, uh, you know, the thing that you are most familiar with, you're often the blindest too, right? Like you don't often think about things like capital market structure and what that actually means, right? If, you, if you're a, a, someone in you know, anywhere, actually, you can have a, a, an E-Trade account, or God forbid, Robinhood account. You can have a range of ways to kind of transact in stock markets, and maybe you're playing with crypto. Um, but all that presupposes that there's this entire structure sitting there of professionals and technology and, and, and practices. So uh, given your background and given the extensive work you've done at the forefront of seeing how the change is coming from people yelling across pits at each other in colorful jackets to this fully online world we have today. Uh, it'd be great to start off with our listeners as a kind of quick background of, 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 of your experience and uh, you know how you began to see things change and what you've advocated for, and we'll take it from there. Thank you very much. Well, it's a pleasure to be with all the listeners of Messy Times today across the world. So my name is Patrick L. Young. I've been a lifelong entrepreneur. I actually started in the obscurity of running old car motor races in my native Ireland, in the north of Ireland, when I was a kid, even before I was at high school. Now, that got me interested in finance, because even in those days when motorsport was a lot cheaper, but still outrageously expensive, you needed to have money to do it, which made me think, well, I should really get into investing. So I was originally an autodidactic investor 
investor. And I thought I really knew quite a lot about what was going on until I spent two days working in the city of London and realized I knew nothing. And it has to be said, I mean, the chasm between, particularly the, the 1980s, 1990s, the chasm between the retail investor and the professional investor cadre, even the brokers and the other people who aren't actually investing the money, they're just the intermediaries, was enormous. And that chasm in some ways exists to this day, but at the same time, thanks to podcasts, thanks to YouTube, thanks to all sorts of discussions, including Messy Times or my own IPO vid live stream, I know a lot of people are trying to educate the world on making them better investors. But it's really fascinating because if you look at market structure, I mean, the markets of two and a half thousand years ago to 5,000 years before Christ, I mean, in the in ancient Egypt, really didn't change much. But yet the one thing that they all had in common was that there was a marketplace at the epicenter of society. So the ancient Romans had their Agora. And the Agora was fascinating because in some ways it was like today we would look at it as being part eBay, part Etsy, part stock exchange, part commodity exchange. And of course it had a huge amount of gossip and conversation at the epicenter because that's where people went. And it had a number of different pricing and market market models. That evolved, of course, during the course of the medieval period when people started getting in their ships and deciding that maybe they could manage to sail all the way until they fell off the flat side of the earth. And whoa, look at that. It's actually quite round. There was a huge growth, obviously, in these markets and they grew up in the coffee shops. Coffee itself being, of course, a new invention at that point in time, at least in the Western world. And of course, bearing absolutely no real relevance whatsoever to either the stuff that you can get in Starbucks or the delicate espressos that you get in Turin and Milan in Italy. And important to break in to say, viewed as a deadly threat to social stability by the royalty at the time who didn't like the idea of people getting all excited and angry about social conditions. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, the Swedes famously had coffee made illegal for you know a century or so, which seems quite incredible given the fact that, I mean, my goodness, how on earth anybody can go through a Swedish winter without a great deal of caffeine in their veins, given the fact that it can be dark for 20 hours in the day. Or if you get further up to the north towards Umea, it's basically dark all day long. So you're right. I mean, coffee was an incredible galvanizing factor. So people sat in these coffee houses and there was one famous coffee house, which was Christopher's. And that was run actually by Mr. Lloyd, Lloyd's Coffee House. Mm -hmm. And that was a place where a lot of people got very interested in the whole idea of drawing an insurance against how people would transact. And then at Jonathan's Coffee House nearby in the heart of the city of London, that's when the Anglo-Saxon speaking world effectively got moving and they got into this idea of equity, buying shares in ships that were gonna go overseas or buying shares in cargo and so on. And that, of course, was fueled simultaneously with, at that stage, the epicenters, the major financial centers of the world, were actually in the lowlands. So in Holland, in Amsterdam, in Rotterdam, in Antwerp, in what is now Belgium, etc., etc. And of course, there you're asking the question about market structure. Well, at that point in time, we settled our transactions, something which has been discussed even as far as the United States Congress in the course of the last month or so. The settlement of transactions actually took place on roughly a T plus 21 day basis. And why was that? Because that was essentially the amount of time that you needed to allow a guy who was in the middle of the mercantile square of Amsterdam to get onto his, to get out the door hand the certificate of stock or the money that he needed paid over against shares to a guy on a horse. That courier from the earlier version of FedEx or DHL then rode to the coast, presumably taking a couple of horses in order to manage to do that. And Kathy, 
Exactly. And, and then he went on his, you know, he went on whatever was the nearest ferry because there wasn't any Eurostar train under the under the Channel Tunnel at that point in time, sailed across to the UK, picked up another horse or two, rode all the way in London, saddled up somewhere just outside the Royal Exchange building built by Sir Thomas Gresham in the heart of the city of London, took his certificate or his cash, wandered in and said, OK, about uh, 17 days ago, actually, I've got this security that I need to deliver or I need to pay for the following order. And that's why we had, you know, three week settlement at that point in time, because that was really the time it took you to manage to get a horse and get from one side of the English Channel to the other or across the edges of the North Sea to settle from where the major financial centers were in London and the lowlands, the Netherlands, respectively. That's excellent. And for those listeners who are not familiar with our inside jargon, uh, Patrick mentioned T plus 21. T in this instance means trade date. It means the moment at which you actually agree to buy or sell something. And the settlement date is when it actually happened, right? So people are used to this idea, uh, certainly in the US, of buying a house. Even if you're buying a house for cash, you can say yes and shake hands. You might even sign a contract. But the house isn't yours. It's going to take a while. They've got a few boring steps and government intermediation and making sure that Caesar gets his tuppence and all that uh, before you actually transfer a title. So people are, are, are comfortable with this idea that I'm going to agree to do something. And then the actual transfer of that title might take a little while. Right. And that's why there are all the U.S. has all sorts of modifications that like title insurance, because we have a um, at this point deliberately insecure system. Uh, whereas plenty of countries have a, or states have a online registry, right, which is which is maintained by the state, and you own this property, you transfer it over. Um, the U.S. is bizarrely uh, at the forefront of property fraud. It happens constantly in this country, especially um, during transitional events. So, so clever criminals in Manhattan, for example, or New York, will read the obituaries. And, you know, if someone dies with lots and lots and lots of, of successors, it's usually not a good, good idea to try this. But if someone dies leaving a lovely brownstone in upper Manhattan or in the Bronx or in Brooklyn or somewhere, and, you know, they're survived by someone and a cat in Ohio, though people will instantly go to that home, start to squat, change the locks on the building, represent themselves as the owners, put up for sale signs and sell it. And take the cash and disappear. Right, this happens constantly. And then you, as the you know the 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 the, the sole survivor of Great Uncle Harry, who had this eight million dollar house in Greenwich Village, that you're very excited to go sell, right, and put your family on Easy Street for the rest of their lives. You rock up, and someone else is living there, and they call the police because you're trying to get into their home. Right? so there are all these inefficiencies built into the system, and this would seem to be one. We've touched on this in a previous conversation. You always got to look at, and this is right in keeping with Messy Times mandate to explain to you all who's lying to you and who benefits and why. Right? So some would argue, especially in that U.S. context, who on earth is benefiting from this ridiculous system? Any one of us could be at risk of title theft, which is what that's called, right? Well, clearly, there's a whole host of lawyers and accountants and others who will intervene on your behalf when said fraud occurs with the chain of misery continuing on and on and on for years, which is why this has never changed. Uh, that and all these local county courthouses, you know, you're looking at, you still think of this in the US in 2021, you have to go to the local county courthouse in most states to deal with title issues. Well, that, that may be lovely if you're popping up to White Plains in Westchester in New York, but you know, you get to a smaller place out in Alabama, you know, lovely state, 
but the population is small and part of the way the government funds itself is via fees, right? So unless they provide another way to provide the fee revenue that, that comes from you know, 40 or 50 title transfers per month, they're not gonna give that up. So that's, that's kind of for our listeners what, what those of us who are, who are focused on quote unquote market structure means, right? Is in any given market, why is it easier to transfer a barrel of oil today anywhere in the world than it is to sell a pound of a specialist material like tantalum? Mm-hmm. Right? And so as, as you've looked at this, what, what, what do you foresee? Is there, is there ever a kind of golden age that we can get to merging technology and practice whereby it's as easy and clear to price a very rare metal as it is to price a share of stock in IBM or you know a bushel of wheat in Kansas? Clearly the big quantum has been the arrival of computers in our everyday life. And I mean, as you well know, Chris, I wrote a book 20 odd years ago. It was published July the 1st, 1999. It was called Capital Market Revolution. And capital, there you go. Oh, there it is. See it. Fantastic. It's all the first edition. <laughs> terrific, terrific. Good to see. So, I mean, Capital Market Revolution 21, 22 years ago was talking about exactly this and saying, look, if you bring computers into transactions and you have computerized records, things can start to get a lot simpler because obviously you're no longer worried about papyrus and things that can essentially be combusted and so on. Of course, you open a whole series of new problems as hackers the world over try to get at your records and so on. You have to make sure that you have a certain degree of overall security within whatever the digital electronic record is. But truly, moving online makes things a lot easier because it draws in transparency. And the wonderful thing about here we are today, talking halfway across the world on this World Wide Web thing, it's the ability that crowds of people can go see those records. So for example, when you talk about these horrible instances of squatters moving in and then deciding to sell this lovely brownstone, wherever it might be, Chelsea or wherever, that becomes more difficult when suddenly all your neighbors around this place can actually manage to look up the records. And of course, if there's an electronic record, look, we all know you're curious, who are the neighbors? Nothing would be better than just going click, 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 click. Oh my goodness, that's Mr. Christopher. Miss Cena has just moved in next door to me. Good God, time to go. Yeah, exactly. I'm listening to the podcast. Wow. I'm learning so much. Messy times. That's superb. But obviously, transparency in that sense is good because when you have this obscure, semi feudal record, which really is the doomsday book of a thousand years ago, more than nearly 1100 years ago, rewritten for the modern age, it just doesn't translate because it's a pointless record. And of course, I mean, if you look at, you're talking about property, canons of property the world over are quite fascinating. I mean, you go to, for example, depending on the empire that previously countries and nations were under, can make a big difference when you're going to buy property. So in the case of a lot of places in, say, South America, it can be, let's call it haphazard, pleasantly haphazard, also given the sort of Spanish-style legal system, not necessarily clear. One of the great things that the British Empire bequeathed on the world was an incredibly orderly bureaucracy, which people can understand, and you can see there's a canon of record. If you look at somewhere, I mean, I think an interesting case is the former Yugoslavia, 
If you look at northern Serbia, actually property records are great. They're pretty clear and so on. Now, they need to go electronic to be better. If you go to the southern end of the country, which was the place that was under the Ottoman Empire, you get a huge differentiation. The Ottoman Empire was not really good at bureaucracy. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, on the other hand, they were probably better at bureaucracy than the British. I mean, everything was recorded beautifully. The only thing the Ottoman, I mean, the Hungarian Empire basically got wrong with the Austro-Hungarian Empire got wrong was they thought that industrialization was a bit smelly and dirty and they didn't really want to be part of it. So therefore, they just went into a terminal decline from which they never recovered. But, you know, if you can take that sort of a record and then electronify it for the modern age, that clearly gives you something very exciting. And of course, one of the things, a buzzword of the moment is this thing called blockchain, which a lot of people are very excited about. And in certain ways, that sort of ledger technology can give you added security, which can make things so much better. And if you can have that sort of thing embedded into your technology stack, that's obviously very useful. And let me offer a quick health warning at this point in time. Blockchain happens to be the distributed ledger that sits behind things like cryptocurrency. But as you very appositely said in your introduction, I think it was words to the effect of we've many people who listen here who are investors in different markets and people who play in cryptocurrency. And I know you didn't use the word invest because I'm not quite sure the cryptocurrency amounts to an investment <laughs> at the moment, any more so than perhaps, you know, whatever's running at Silver Lakes this afternoon represents an afternoon for the 1200 meters before it manages to come first, second, third, or possibly doesn't show at all. Technology is a big driver of making records better. Distributing technology and records is a great way to make the world more transparent. Transparency helps us understand who owns what, who can buy and sell what, and therefore gives us confidence. Because at the end of the day, forget all the things about the law, forget all the things about everything else. What actually makes a capitalist economy work is trust. And if you don't have trust, you don't have anything. And that's why records are important because if I don't trust you and don't believe that you have what you say you're selling, I'm not gonna to wanna to buy it. And that's a very, very simple thing. That's an important, the better, that, that the record, think, the better the trust. That is well well said, but I think it's also important to drill down on that, right? Because sure. the, then the question becomes, okay, trust as an abstract, whom or what do I need to trust? to transact, right? Um, you made the comment that the Austro-Hungarian Empire was good or better at record keeping than the, Ottoman, than the Ottomans were. Well, again, that begs the question of who benefits from either crisp, transparent, clear line of sight title records and who benefits from them being really murky? Like in, a, in, a, in, a, in an Ottoman Empire uh, construct, Clearly, it was to the massive benefit to the local big man to control mm -hmm. information, right? If you had to come to the local bay and bow and beg his, his, his indulgence to transfer title or to adjudicate for you, well, he was in a position of power, right? The, the oh. more that, that knowledge is restricted, the better it is to the one who owns the knowledge. Yep. So, and the, the, that balancing point that we see, we're seeing that we're seeing it in firebombing and fights in the streets in America today, which I find kind of amazing, um, that there are still, there are, there are elements in the society, politically and, and otherwise, who are all in favor, despite abundant evidence 
from 1919 in the Soviet Union to Venezuela today, that if we just do it right, this time socialism is going to work. Well, by just do it right, they mean they're going to be King Turd on Crap Mountain. Now, why anyone wants to be King Turd on Crap Mountain is beyond me, but that seems to be their desire, or they're just incredibly historically ignorant. Hard to know. But those voices that clamor against uh, transparency are huge. And there's, if you uh, read Hernando de Soto's work, The Ministry of Capital, yeah. this is one of the, for those, those who, are, who haven't listened, who don't know this, um, this is one of the, I think maybe the only instance in which a leftist revolution was overthrown by an academic's arguments about the virtues of capitalism. Right, so Sendero Luminoso was was ravaging Peru, and Hernando de Soto was a, was a professor who decided to send out uh, his legions of graduate students to try to set up a business legitimately under the rules of Peru. For those for those who don't have never seen his work, it's incredibly worth reading. So in, in English, it's the Mystery of Capital. And what he found out was both astonishing. Well, no, not astonishing. Completely unsurprising to any of you who have ever done any work in what we call the developing world, right? A place where records are still uh, deliberately often not made clear, where there's a there's a little bit of bribe paid for every step of the way. And they, they mapped this out and found out that to, that to open up a, say, a tailor shop in Lima took 148 steps in 18 months. Because insanity, you had to go to this office and they had to stamp it here. And you couldn't go to that office until this office stamped this and they paid them seven cent teams, all this crap. Um, and so they, they, they cut through all this nonsense and an academically led study of capitalist inefficiencies and the right to pro property. And they, their main, main objective, as you know, was to say to the government, the reason we have no economic development and the North Americans do is because they got clear property rights. You know, 95% of startup capital comes from an entrepreneur taking a risk with the family home and taking out a mortgage on his or her real estate and starting a business. And if you don't have a clear title to something, a bank won't give you money against it. Precisely. So where, you know, you've, you've worked in both heavily developed markets, London, New York, uh, elsewhere, Warsaw, but they've also worked a lot in, in, in less developed markets. It's kind of the wrong way of saying it. In, in markets that are still not quite sold as a societal value, that objective transparency is the path forward for us all collectively, even though there are sometimes winners and losers. Where, where do you see the most sort of promise in the world today for those countries that are moving towards that more objective system that we, that we extol? What I think is very interesting about that is and I must say, Chris, I mean, this is the messy times when you're being incredibly diplomatic there when you're talking about the less developed countries, because truly there are some countries which are, when it comes to running business, effectively amoebic in terms of their organization and how you can go about doing it. And you're absolutely right, the 150 steps in order to create a business. I mean, you know, the one of the things that makes, for example, the United Kingdom, despite many flaws, still great today is you or I can go online right now and register a business from anywhere in the world and we just basically pay 20 or 50 pounds. I mean, a relatively negligible amount of money. We get a limited company, same day, it'll be gazetted within a day. 
and it's yours. And you can then take that and you can start opening a bank account, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously that's a huge difference to a lot of other countries in the world where they have, I mean, I, I set up a company once in Romania. I used to run a stock exchange in Romania. That was, that was quite an interesting exercise. It's, uh, let's put it this way, to summarize, it's not altogether surprising that Romanian corporate governance is not something that is widely admired the world <laughs> that way. But what we saw there was, I mean, an impossibility. Trying to start a new company was just hilarious because there were 10 or 12 desks inside a building. And in order to go one to 12, which is what you were supposed to do, Half the time you had to have some piece of paper that had been stamped by desk two before desk four would stamp it, but desk four wouldn't stamp it until desk seven had stamped it, but they were out of sequence because you had to have desk three, but you couldn't get desk three until you'd already passed. And desk two was on his monthly vacation. He'd be back maybe. <laughs> it wasn't even that. I mean, it was just impossible. I mean, it was essentially impossible to manage to get around the system without knowing someone or presumably offering an inducement. Now, I'm just not in the business of bribing people and I don't care what I have to do, but there's a reason. And I think actually one of the things that the US authorities are quite good at is applying you know, orange jumpsuits all around to people who bribe people in emerging markets. And that's certainly one way to clean those markets up. It also, of course, unfortunately means that other people who are less moral manage to go in and do business. Yep. But you asked about the talent issue, the overall development issue, and that's where I see it, talent. We have an incredible bifurcation on this planet at the moment because the sovereign individual's talent is now breaking away from the, how might one describe it, cluster mess of the country and the administrative system in which they are living. So therefore, if you go to Romania, you can find an incredible talent pool of wonderful, great English spoken, often other languages as well, quite frequently German, Hungarian, etc. Italian very prevalent because Romanian is very close to Italian and Spanish as a language. They are polyglot, they are well educated, and they are looking for ways to manage to improve their lives. The difficulty is they know that actually it's incredibly difficult to do that within the constraints of what are in a lot of emerging markets, moribund, if not outright corrupt states. And therefore we have a huge problem because those countries represent somewhere where it's very, very difficult to do business. But those people that you can get in those countries are incredible. And I think one of the things that is a positive to bring out of COVID, although at the same time, this is going to scare the living daylights out of an awful lot of, say, for example, recent US graduates who've currently got whatever it is, you know, $5,000 worth of debt for every one of their 360 grade points or whatever it is that they managed to get through their, their BA or LLB or whatever, is in these countries with Zoom, with remote working, there's an incredible number of jobs those people can do, and they're going to do it to an incredibly high standard. They will work at all sorts of hours of the day and night. And by the way, when I say that, don't jump on my back and say, oh, we're talking about exploitational Victorian capitalism. No, no, I'm talking about people who work an eight-hour shift at some point during the course of the day. Sure. But they are flexible. 
they are hardworking, they are diligent, and they are actually, in a way, ironically, starting to prop up the country. Because what they've done is they haven't taken up DeSoto's maxim of starting a business, they've gone round the system. They've become one person entrepreneurs almost in terms of offering their services to the rest of the world. Sometimes it's on contract to one company, sometimes it's a portfolio of businesses. And the driving factor to that brings us all back to technology. You know, who are the two most powerful members of your family? Well, they may have their own political biases, one could argue, but ultimately, Uncle Google and Auntie Wikipedia are the power couple of knowledge to get you so far in the world and understand what's going on. Not because they are perfect, but because they are free and easy to access. And that's why also you're seeing a very interesting inflection point on technology, which is in those countries, Everybody's using Gmail. Why? Because you can have Gmail and Google Suite and Google Drive and Google Docs and Google Sheets free. What's happening with Microsoft? They're kind of passe. In the emerging markets world, Microsoft is a thing that you get in big corporations because you don't see it dripping down because people have to pay and people are not going to pay. Not that I think that it's necessarily unreasonable what Microsoft are asking them to pay, but they're really not gonna pay the extra 20, 30, $50 on top of whatever it is to buy their laptop in the first place to add the Microsoft Office suite to what they want because they can be global they can use Google Meet. They can use all these things. It's not like an incredible Google ad, but the point I'm making is free resources. <laughs> yeah, I'll provide the anti-Google ad in a second, but go ahead. <laughs> so many, there are so many free resources empowering the power of talent, the power of the individual. And therefore, it's almost not about what country do you want to invest in right now? It's about what pool of talent do you need and want to have on your team in order to be able to operate your business profitably. Amen. And the 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 funny thing about um, those tools, right? There there are double-edged swords everywhere, and I roar especially with with Wikipedia because I know that all the professors I had that was starting that was, the internet was still in its infancy when I was at university. It wasn't really prevalent, but I've gotten to know a lot more professors, many of whom you know have, have made it clear to their classes. You know, if you ever cite Wikipedia in a paper, it's an automatic F. Or you, yeah. can, you can use it as a source to begin your searches. But if yeah. someone put up a Wikipedia post and it references the Encyclopedia Britannica, you go check the Encyclopedia Britannica and quote that, right? Yeah. I, I, I'm just on, on a very minor note, have had this hilarious ongoing Wikipedia war over an entry around national merit scholarships. Okay. Right? By, 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 no, not by chance, by diligent hard work. Uh, I am a national merit scholar, which is a test that it is, is a designation given at the end of your high school career for test excellence, uh, a national test. And so someone, a friend of mine, uh, was busy fluffing out the, the national uh, merit scholarship page and cited me, added me as a merit scholarship. Other people instantly thought, no, 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 that's incorrect. And they go and cor correct it to link to Chris Messina, who is this actor in New York, who's about my age. Um, <laughs> and so just every now and again, I check and, and, and he checks. And, and, and But this has been going on now for like five years. <laughs> that yep. someone has got it in his head that the actor in Woody Allen movies is the guy with the National Merit Scholarship. 
<laughs> and they keep changing this and linking back to him. It is it's hilarious. So there's there's for like arguably what's funny is for the for unimportant bits of information, Wikipedia is probably fairly accurate. But for yeah. anything that has any sort of social or monetary value, it is deliberately wildly inaccurate because someone benefits from the information being wrong. Oh, um, absolutely. But it's specificity. It's high level expertise. If you can manage to read something, and the great thing about Wikipedia is it does stress hundreds of sources. So you learn other sources to go and read, and then you start reading other things, and then you learn. And right. that's no different in a caveat emptor for information sense than any of the current news media. Hey, where you sure. Everybody's coming at everything with their own agenda, and therefore you've got to take it. The great thing is, in the old days, you had to trundle your way off to a library, or you had to hope that you were blessed with parents who had a vast library of books in order to learn things. And therefore, these days, at least you can go online, Uncle Google and Auntie Wikipedia, they're kind of like mentors that point you in the right direction and then leave Grasshopper to go off and develop himself in the water margin so that you have to practice and become brilliant and do the other, you know, they're the first hour of your 10,000. You've got 9,999 hours to look forward to with other sources. Right. I wish you'll be somewhere. But a lot of that information is also free. And that's something that is absolutely incredible because that's powering what has previously been an information divide between the established places with the huge big libraries and the rest of the world. I mean, why are Oxford, Cambridge, the Ivory League, you know, why are those colleges so fantastic? Well, if you look at the way the buildings are laid out, they all have these libraries, which are essentially the size of small villages in the middle of France, because that's where the repository of knowledge lay. Nowadays, the repository of knowledge is distributed and everybody can get together and of course, pool their ignorance through any old Zoom meeting or podcast, but there's a nugget in everything that you can go and check and you can debunk whether things are true or not. That's, ex that's, that's an excellent point. I remember um, one of my favorite parts of Douglas Adams' um, five book trilogy, right? Mm. <laughs> the Galaxy was, was, was the, uh, the planet designer, Slaughter Bartfest, who was going to retire after yep. you know, eons of career. Um, and he wanted, and, and he was writing a book about galactic history, which, which was of course very interesting because he was part of a, he was part of the campaign for true time because in a, in a universe full of time travel, what is history, right? What, what on earth is history? And, but I, I never forget this. It made a huge impression upon me at a young age where he was, he was devoting his, his, the twilight years of his life to this effort because there were one or two matters in the historical record that he desperately wanted to set wrong. Yes, that's right. That's, <laughs> set, set the record wrong. You want to set the record wrong. It was, I never forget. And so um, my college roommate is now also in finance uh, in Europe. We, we, for years, have said that when we retire, we're going to set up a, a highly endowed chair of ridiculous misinformation at our alma mater. Um, where the, it's a real professorship and it's going to be so lucrative that people are going to want it. But you have to commit to telling at least one or two blatant lies and, and half-truths in every lecture and let the students sort it out. <laughs> what is the insane lie he's told today? I think, much like Wikipedia, that's going to stimulate young minds. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I think I think it's a great way to stimulate minds when you when you have to sort out the wheat from the chaff, and therefore it's it's a huge meter. Or as as a famous British rabbi once memorably described the British tabloid newspapers, we understand we know that they can easily separate the wheat from the chaff. Why did they always print the chaff? <laughs> was that Lord Sachs or was that someone else? It was I, I'm kind of remember actually which who it was. It was it was on the moral maze many years ago. I don't think it was Lord Sachs, but uh, I will well, I will get back to you. Priceless <laughs> why because the chaff sells. Yeah, absolutely. The chaff sells. The chaff That's... sells. Oh, interesting. So if, if you really had to for the for those of our listeners who have who are now, I'm not even going to pre-qualify. For those of our listeners who are firstly wise enough to listen, um, you know, what, what is the core piece of advice you would provide or core piece of guidance based on your experience uh, in these markets and seeing what has worked and what has, what has been most effective in increasing the flourishing and development and enrichment of the broader society? What would you suggest they pay most attention to and what, conversely, when they see politicians trying to constrain things the battles they choose to push back against hardest. So what, what's your optimistic focus and what is the thing that you'd say to people, this is what you go to the battlements about? Well, the, the first point I have to make is I'm always reminded of all those great movies in the sort of 30s, 40s, and even into the 50s. And in fact, Indiana Jones reprised the same line, which was, you know, above all, Dr. Jones, don't trust anybody, says the guy who's in the pay of the Nazis. And it subsequently turns out in the second reel, of course, he has Indiana Jones and his father bound up, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, a degree of skepticism is vitally important. The most important facet skill you can bring to the game at all points in time is due diligence. And it shocks me. The biggest difference between actually the professionals and the amateurs is not because they can manage to calculate some incredibly difficult forward, backward, repo, upward, downward, swap, rip, goodness knows, whatever it is. It's the fact that they actually read and understand the stuff behind what's going on. And that's a lot more than digging into the headlines. It's a lot more than taking the easy media source, which is, you know, all these delightfully interesting eccentric characters, like, I don't know, like a Jim Cramer, who's running around going like, Coinbase is the future. It's an incredible thing. Well, there are so many things in that statement that are so interesting, you could carry on, we could have a complete new messy times on that just alone. And I, I wrote an article about CapEx about that, is, is Coinbase the new South Sea bubble just last week? But I think due diligence are the two most important words in the English language for any investor. You've got to go forward and you've got to make your own decisions by understanding your research. And therefore, wherever you're going to find opportunity, the opportunity is going to be driven by what your due diligence finds for you. And I think one of the things that is the problem in investment is that everybody still has this, what I would call graduate syndrome. I mean, what happened in the course of the graduate, that great movie, all the people at the cocktail party are all going plastics. plastics. <laughs> the truth is plastics was part of the future but so were $157,000 things. And I think the worst thing for investors is you end up meeting people and they bought an investment in some incredible, new, amazing, sexy invention that's gonna change the world. And you go, do you understand this? And they go, no. And you go, well, have you tried to understand the process? And they go, 
Nope. Well, why have you invested? Because it's going to be huge. It's going to be incredible. And it's really, it's like that cartoon with a singing frog that jumps out in front of you on the, on the sidewalk and sings away. You put it in a box and when you take it to the management, it just sits there and goes rivet, rivet, rivet. And you end up getting <laughs> locked up in the lunatic asylum because Really, what you've got to do is you've got to use your savvy, your knowledge and your understanding. If you look at some of the best investors in the world, they tend to do incredibly boring investments. If you look at the way that even someone like a Warren Buffett, now Warren Buffett has made a few highly colorful comments referring to derivatives as weapons of mass destruction and so on, which it's kind of right, but also is also sublimely wrong. Given He's the, the most magical performance artist of all time. Totally. But what you see is Buffett has an investment type and we all have our personalities. We all have our separate approaches to which we adopt the world. And that's why whatever you're going to do, there's no point in finding yourself in the middle of Ukraine looking for incredible investment opportunities. And there are incredible investment opportunities in every emerging market in the world if you're not the sort of person who's comfortable with or understands that terrain. You've got to invest in the sort of things that actually you understand, you can do your due diligence on, and you can get to know. And I mean, that's sort of like, for example, if you take crowdfunding, crowdfunding has been this huge thing of the course of the last 10, 11 years. It's been a very, very interesting process because a lot of people end up buying a lot of things because they think it's glamorous and they see a YouTube video and somebody on TikTok tells them it's really exciting and so on. And, and that's okay. That's And that's that's actually not investing. That's just fun. That's just entertainment. I mean, that's the same as going to a horse race in the UK because, you know, and you decide you're going to bet $10 on such a horse to show or win. When you look at something like crowdfunding, you see very quickly there are two types of people who are really successful. One are what I would call the kind of the localists, which are, I live in Valletta and Malta. And I'm actually interested in the businesses that are all around me in Valletta and Malta because I can go out there, I can touch it, I can kind of meet the people, I can see what's going on and therefore I can understand what's going on. And then there are also what I would call the specialists, but the specialists are kind of global because they understand something. They understand whatever it is, antique furniture, classic cars, the rag trade of textiles, elements of, of computing or programming or something. And those are their skill sets. And then they can apply that. And they can apply that reasonably easily, whether the programmer is in Novi Sad in Serbia or whether he's in Baltimore. Interesting. Oh, well, and that, that, that's spot on advice. I give a talk um, at Alpha Hedge West a few years ago. And the title of it, of course, is a common phrase we all use in these markets, which is if you're playing poker and you don't know who the mark is, it's you. Right? <laughs> if you don't fully understand the structure of the players around you, the market you're in, as I decided to leave a career at Wall Street, which is chock full of kind hearted people who will never do bad things to you to go into mining, which makes Hollywood and, and Wall Street look like charitable organizations who, who all of whose participants took an oath an oath of fealty to God before yeah. it began. And I've just been, I, I part of my joy of moving into mining is that my capacity for surprise has just been amplified. <laughs> I, just, I just can't believe the nonsense I see. Um, just very quickly, one of the, one of the best things that's happened the last few, few, few months is uh, one of my partners uh, is the majority owner of this massive mine, it's not publicly traded, so therefore it's 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 really susceptible 
to all sorts of shenanigans. And in penny stock markets like mining, there's a lot of nonsense and a lot of screaming. But the best thing ever is an attorney in D.C. called me a month ago and told me about this guy who walked into his office to sell him the mine that we own. <laughs> Fabulous. And it's just by chance, right? This, this fraudster is out there selling this mine because it's in the papers, right? It's privately, it's in the papers. So he's decided to take advantage of this. And he's like trotting around telling people, much like squatting in the brownstone, but a lot harder because it's a massive deposit. And I roared with laughter. And, and, and to, to his credit, this attorney pal of mine just had the meeting, took notes, took his information, like listened to this whole spiel for like 20 minutes and called me and said, you're going to love this. <laughs> and then, or, for all I know, you sold it to him yesterday, did you? I was like, no. <laughs> so you know, there's, there's, um, there's, always, there's always room in this world, sadly, uh, for the sleaze weasels and the liars and the thieves. And that also is something, you know, that's one of the biggest concerns I always have when people are wading into markets they don't understand. And your point oh. is, if you under, if you don't understand not just the business, whatever it is, but the environment it, in which it resides, the legal system, you know, relatively strong, a week in which it, it, it is administered, then it's gambling, and that's fine. I give you if you if you don't mind that you lose the three grand you punt on this thing, go ahead. But it's not investing, no. uh, and and all of that is just sand in the gears of, of a more smoothly uh, functioning society, smoothly functioning capitalist system. You know, my my last um, thought, which I'd be curious to see if, if it applies outside the U.S. is when I try to listen to the screaming objections. Um, of those who are, you know, claiming to be against uh, uh, the capitalist system, usually coming from some spoiled brat who got their degree in Marxist studies at Yale, uh, which I, you know, as, as an attorney friend of mine said, it's only defamation if it's untrue. So I, I invite the Yale attorneys to give me a call. Um, what they're screaming about has nothing to do with, with a system of free property rights and exchange. It's got to do with unpleasant impacts. Like I have $300,000 in student debt um, because no one bothered to tell me that if I couldn't afford to pay for a degree in applied 14th century French romantic poetry, that I'd be screwed going forward. Um, but what they're complaining about isn't a capitalist system. It's a distortion created by people who try to interfere in that system. And if there were no government backstop to those student loans, you couldn't have take out that money. Right? If there were a real lender saying, well, what are you studying? Oh, good, you're studying math and applied physics? Terrific, I'll, I'll, I'll lend you money for your degree. If you're studying comparative romantic poetry from the Beowulf era, that's great. I wish you all the luck of the world and I hope you have a trust fund. Yeah, well, I've got to think. But then isn't it interesting because a lot of the things that people complain about are mostly, they say, oh, capitalism is broken, but actually these are usually the huge distortions of a free market. So you have a thing called the European Union, which essentially spends a lot of money to make sure that it gets lobbied by large corporations. And if you're an individual, you can't go and talk to them because none of you have to represent a large industrial block, whether it's a trades union, whether it's a university, whether it's some big corporation. So you can be the world expert in something, but they won't hear from you. No. But say I'm the executive vice president of nothing consequential at XYZ Megacorp, which is a multinational, they'll go, yeah, please come in. And so you have this crazy top down. And I mean, education, I think, is just so interesting because what is education? I mean, certainly there is a 
scheduled system where they incarcerate you by day and sometimes they keep you overnight depending on the kind of school you go to interesting that the people who get incarcerated are the ones who are in the posher and more expensive schools but they keep you there for 7 10 14 years they let you out eventually they then you know make you go to university and I, i'm really confused about that one because frankly the benefits of what university really deliver in this day and age are looking resoundingly patchy. The irony is you may be actually better off doing something really bonkers. I mean, like doing classics, because at least that'll teach you a way to think. Yes. You an opportunity to go forward rather than, you know, forward, backward dishwashing and sociology or something, which ultimately makes you the lip rag in the corner. And, and that's, there's, there's a big problem there because to me, the whole education system just should be torn apart. And I oh, mean, absolutely. This day and age, yeah. the biggest racket, and if you want a great investment opportunity, it's education. The oh, yeah. education where you can manage to deliver. Because where's our Southwest Airlines of education? I mean, you can get into Southwest Airlines, you can fly anywhere if there's no COVID, and essentially you can do it for a handful of dollars. Okay, it's not as comfortable as sitting in the front, the beautiful first class well, seats I was, of Eddie. That's a good point. A lot of things that come up, like Coursera and a few others that have online courses and will give you tests and certificates. Yep. And, um, and what I find hilarious, I, I don't, I certainly don't want to give you, our listeners, a mistaken impression. I'm not one of these folks who, and it's come up here in policy-wise in the U.S. and other states, um, if you go study a hard STEM science and that's, that will give you a degree and that's valuable. My major was anthropology with a minor in Islamic history and Arabic. And that enabled me, like anyone can learn finance, who could care, right? I used to, we, 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 we roared laughter because three of us were roommates in our, uh, in our middle two years at the University of Chicago. Two of us were anthropology majors. One was literally the darling of the economics department. They loved him. Bright, bright yep. guy, nice guy, bright guy. They, one of the few people to ever graduate with a master's and a bachelor's degree in economics. And we would have only the types of long running, you know, beer fueled arguments at two in the morning one can have at university. And, and we, we roared laughter because the two anthropologists have been in the capital markets for 25 years and he's a lawyer. The, the, the economist is a lawyer. And so and I don't believe in, pres in prescription at all. I believe the government should get out of education in terms yeah. of throwing money at things, that's oh, no. distortion. And that's the big argument that we've had, we're trying to have here. Two things happened in the US, which I think are illustrative for those who are making changes to their policy. Um, one was a Supreme Court decision in the 70s that said it was, um, I don't know what the phrasing was, but basically they made it illegal for an employer to test potential employees. And that would seem insane. If I need to hire someone and yeah. their entire job is filing, I would like yes. to give them a test to see if they know the alphabet. Can they, how quickly can they work? But you weren't allowed to do that. So then, of course, people look for proxies. Water flows around a rock. So then yep. became, well, do you have a high school diploma? That actually used to mean something. And the first yes. in this country meant you study Greek and Latin, right? Yep. But that doesn't mean anything anymore. So you got this degree inflation. Well, okay, I can ask if someone has a degree from a university. Well, then those exploded. Well, now I'm going to only choose from these 10 universities. So the, every attempt that, that micromanaging social engineers try to put in place to decrease the reality, the yep. objective reality of competitive markets, which have been true since whoever was fast enough to get to the springbok on the veldt 7,000 years ago as it is today, exactly. all they do is create sand in the gears, they disrupt things, usually for their own benefit. If I'm in the government, I become a certifying organization and you have to come to me for the quote unquote right 
to work. Yep. So, you know, for, for those who are fortunate enough to be living in dynamic societies like, you know, Estonia, which is phenomenal with its electronic passports and everything's online and efficiency that the U.S. government can't even dream of. The IRS still has computers running on vacuum tubes, right? Yep. Um, it, it, it must be marvelous to be at the forefront of that without all the legacy burden, which, which for whatever reason, we just can't seem to shake off. Well, that's one of the things, I mean, the Great Leap Forward is one of the most exciting things of all. I mean, if you look at Ireland, for example, I mean, I come from the north of Ireland, one of the reasons the Irish economy really was able to explode and become the Celtic Tiger was because when I was a kid, the telephone network was backward. I mean, there were little cottage houses in small villages and you walked in the door and it was a telephone exchange with somebody plugging things in and out, which, you know, the United States of America hadn't seen since very early Jimmy Stewart movies. Yeah. And yet what they did then was they jumped the backbone and they went straight to fiber optic cable. And that allowed a huge explosion. If you look at the way that some countries, like for example, say a lot of Kenya, have been able to jump straight into mobile networks and they moved, what happened there? The banks aren't really where the finance is at, the finance is in M-Pesa. And M-Pesa works because the Kenyan economy very quickly allowed mobile finance. And then of course, what's going on there? You build your data centers, not where there's a telephone exchange, you build it underneath the tower of the mobile phone center. So wherever there's a mobile phone tower, you're building underneath the data center because that's where the data is coming through, which is, you know, we're back to Willie Mullins. You know, why are you robbing banks? Because that's where the money money is. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Excellent, Patrick, we we could go on forever and I'm sure our listeners would be be enlightened thereby. Um, as, as we uh, James and I said, we set this up. Our goal is to enlighten Tain. And I believe on behalf of our listeners today, you have more than enlightened Tain them and give them lots to think about. So we appreciate you coming on the show um, and hope to have you back. And we can I'll discuss your, your, your updated works. So I know you've got a book out right now, which you- In the meantime, yeah, exactly. If I may just say so, just for your 20 second shoppers, we won't try and offer you soap powder at this point, but check out Victory or Death, which is my latest tome. It's got a forward by the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange, Jeffrey Sprecher, who is one of the world's greatest entrepreneurs. I would say he's in the top 10 or 20 of living entrepreneurs at the moment. It's about blockchain, cryptocurrency in the FinTech world. And it's one of the few books where you will learn everything from double entry bookkeeping through auditing and how those are going to be revolutionized by the future of finance and the future of technology itself. A course in itself to help people advance their lives. Exactly. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Good to see you, Patrick. Pleasure, Chris. Until next time, everybody. Turn off the news and tune into Messy Times.